Listen. Just listen. I'm Amanda Delheimer, and you're listening to the Second Story Podcast. Second Story is a hybrid performance series of stories, wine, and music, a collaboration amongst writers, actors, musicians, and others to create good stories and good times. The stories are written by the performers themselves, sometimes funny, sometimes poignant, always thought-provoking. And now, Second Story storyteller, Diane Patterson. Ruby is two, but still one of the most strong-willed kids I've ever babysat. I see her blonde curls bounce as she races towards the bookcase and realize it's too late. She's too far ahead of me, and once she gets that book in her hand, the book her mother had warned me was her new favorite, it will be nearly impossible to persuade her to change her mind. She tears through her picture book and finds it. The Ugly Duckling. Diane! Diane! This one! Weed! This one! I look at the cover, my neck muscles tightening, the headache already forming in the back of my head. Okay, I sigh, settling on the floor with her. I open to the first page, take a deep breath, look down, and... I just can't do it. Okay, so this is the deal. It's not that I don't like reading or kids' books, it's just that I deeply, passionately, for realsy, hate The Ugly Duckling. Every time I read it, I feel worse than I did when I started. Not just worse, I feel awful. Ruby squirms next to me, and I dread what comes next. Rubes? Not today. Diane doesn't feel like reading this book today. Let's pick out another one, okay? Her face turns to mine, her blue eyes clear and pretty. And then she opens up her perfect rosebud lips and lets out a shriek that takes my beginner headache to an adult migraine. (laughs) Ruby is my favorite babysitting kid. I held her when she was three weeks old, and I would do anything to keep her from sobbing on the floor next to me right now. Anything but read her this book. (laughs) And here's why. I was five, sitting in a semicircle with my kindergarten class the first time I heard this story. My teacher, Miss Miller, described how homely and lonely and sad this runty brown duckling was, living in a pond of assorted fowl, each one more beautiful than the last. But it didn't make much sense to me, because I thought the duckling was cute. Like a little fluffy brown cotton ball. So I raised my hand. Miss Miller, why is the duckling so sad? Miss Miller turned to face me. Because she's different, sweetie, and she feels left out. Aren't you guys sad when you feel left out of something? The semicircle of blonde heads nodded and Miss Miller continued to read. (laughs) Normally, I agreed with everything she said. But that day, I didn't quite believe her, and I grew uncomfortable as I watched the little duckling struggle, always the odd chick out, always being made fun of. When Mrs. Miller turned to the last page and revealed the duckling's transformation into a white swan, my class was enthralled. I was not. I wanted to know what was so cool about having to change, having to get big and white, to showboat around a pond filled with birds that had been so mean to it before. I raised my hand again. Miss Miller... Why did the duckling have to change? What was wrong with her before? Well, sweetie, before she was ugly and drab. Now she's turned into something beautiful and graceful. Don't you think it's better this way? Class, don't you think it's better this way? 
The semicircle agreed, Miss Miller clapped her hands, and story time was over. Now, I don't know what you think, but I think telling a little brown girl that a little brown duckling is ugly and drab may not have been Miss Miller's brightest moment. <laughs> that it's almost criminal to explain to the only brown child in class the way to fit in is to change into something white and familiar. They say that kids don't notice race until adults make them, but for me, that wasn't true. In my family, it was normal not to look the same. My dad had brown skin, my mom had white, and my brothers and I fell somewhere in between the two. I had always known we didn't look alike, and neither did my friends and I, but I didn't know that I was supposed to feel left out of something. And I didn't know that when people looked at me, it was the differences they saw. As I got older, I tried to forget that story, but growing up in northern Minnesota and Wisconsin, surrounded by the toe-headed descendants of Vikings, <laughs> it was difficult to ignore my dark skin and hair. And it wasn't just my appearance. It was the words of the kids and adults around me that set me apart. Like when I was nine and came home from school crying because some kid told me I had skin the color of poop. <laughs> my after-school babysitter, Mrs. Brower, tried to make me feel better. Honey, your skin's not poopy brown. It's cafe au lait. You look just like my coffee after I've added all the cream. I won't even touch my coffee until it's just the color of your skin. Does that make you feel better? As a nine-year-old, I didn't have the ability to say no. <laughs> to tell Mrs. Brower that only a crazy pants would explain a child's appearance and racial heritage by comparing it to a popular morning beverage. As an adult, I see it as the beginning of a very disturbing trend. It happened again in seventh grade when after returning from a Mexican vacation, my teacher, Mr. Soup Cup, said, Diane, welcome back from Mexico. You left looking like an almond and you came just as dark back just you came back just as dark as a little coffee bean. <laughs> I sat in the middle of class, my face getting hot underneath my tan as my classmates giggled in the back of the room, and I prayed desperately for the ability to shrink down to the size of the coffee bean I apparently looked like and roll right out of the room. But the worst was my sophomore year of high school when my history teacher, Mrs. Schwartz, was explaining to us about the racial hierarchies of southern plantations. Mid-explanation of the word mulatto, a historically racist word used to describe biracial people, she must have gotten hungry. Because instead of saying mulatto, she started saying Milano. You know, like the Pepperidge farm cookie. <laughs> I sat in the middle of class, frozen at her blunder, and when she turned to me and innocently asked, Diane, you being biracial, I'd like to defer to you. Is there anything that you'd like to add to this discussion on Milano's? <laughs> I just sat there and mumbled, no, uh, I think you probably covered it all. I sank into my seat and hoped that nobody else had noticed. Unfortunately, everyone had. And for the rest of that year, I was called Milano. Now, you might think I seem disproportionately bothered by people's small mistakes or casual slips of the tongue, but how about you? How would you like it if I described you as milky, or vanilla, or white bread, or cracker? I don't think you would, because you're a person, not a foodstuff, and you deserve the respect to be described accordingly. And maybe I am a little sensitive. But when people are constantly reminding you of your differentness, you start to get a little paranoid. 
Is my hair too nappy? Does my nose look too wide? Will everyone expect me to be good at basketball just because I'm brown? <laughs> like maybe all that people see when they see me is how we're not the same color. Otherwise, why would they take such pains to point it out to me? Fortunately, by the time I hit college, I was feeling a little less self-conscious of my non-whiteness. But I still felt lonely. I mean, how many times can you realize you're the only brown person in most of the photos you have of yourself without feeling out of place? And then I met Carrie. Being half black and half Chinese didn't stop Carrie from being 100% cool. She called herself Blasian. And with her smooth, tan skin, long black hair, and dark brown eyes, Carrie was all of the things that I was not. Comfortable, relaxed, unconcerned with her blackness in a crowd of white. Carrie and I met when we were both accepted for a nationwide summer minority research grant. And for three months, I asked her all the questions I hadn't been able to ask my other friends. Carrie, how do you get your hair so straight? My chi hair straightener? Don't worry, we'll get you one. Carrie, do people always ask you what your parents look like? Yeah, it's super annoying. As the summer continued, my questions grew in intensity and intimacy, but Carrie never ignored them, and she never pulled her punches. Carrie, do you ever wish that you were white sometimes? What? I mean, do you ever wish that you looked like everyone else? Diane, do you know how many people look like us? I mean, it's not like you're deformed or something. No, I know. I'm just saying. You know. No, I don't. Diane, trust me. In 20 years, everyone's going to look like us. I'd heard other people say this, but when Carrie said it, I sort of believed it. And then we went to the end of the summer conference. Located in Iowa City, possibly the whitest location in the Midwest, <laughs> the conference was designed to introduce all the grant recipients to each other. Carrie and I arrived at the introductory luncheon bitching about having to attend, but as soon as I walked through the front doors of the conference hall, I stopped talking because I couldn't breathe. I was stunned, hot and cold with nervous butterflies in my stomach and clammy, sweaty hands as I realized that feeling different can change depending on what room you're standing in. Because in that room, a room the size of a football field, all I could see was brown. If there are a thousand variations of the color brown, they all existed in the room that day. Everywhere I looked, there they were. Short and tall, Loud and quiet, pretty and not so pretty, afroed and extensioned, but all of them brown. Half of them looked like me, and we weren't even related. Standing there, I knew this was one of the biggest, brightest, loudest moments of my life. I wanted to say something, to explain what I was feeling, to make sure everyone else saw what I was seeing, but I couldn't because my mouth was filled with cotton and I didn't have the words to explain what I wanted to shout. That finally, after 22 years, I felt normal. Carrie looked back at me standing still in the doorway and grinned at my expression. See, I told you, you look like everyone else here. Now hustle up, Happy. I'm hungry. I walked to join her. 
And as we both walked to take our seats, I could feel myself, for the first time ever, slowly melt and disappear into a crowd. I was 22 when I realized that I didn't have to transform into something else to feel normal and beautiful. But if it took me nearly two decades to forget the ugly duckling, there's no way I'm going to read a story like that to Ruby. I know when her mother comes home, I'll have to have an uncomfortable conversation about why I'll never read this book to her daughter. I hope it will be okay. Maybe it won't. But for the moment, I'm done worrying about it. So instead, as Ruby sobs on the floor next to me, I go to the bookshelf and pick out a new book. I drag her into my lap, kiss her sweaty forehead, and open up the cover of Harold and the Purple Crayon. It's one of my favorites. It's about a little boy who goes on colorful adventures slightly off the beaten track, gets a little lost, but in the end always manages to find a way to feel at home. And that is the kind of story I can get behind. That was Diane Patterson. If her story gives you ideas for your own second story, we'd love to hear them. Please join us for one of our ongoing series at Webster's Wine Bar or the Morseland, or for one of our upcoming special events. This month, we're at Bistro Campania in Lincoln Square on April 22nd, where we're pairing four courses with four wines and four stories, all in celebration of Earth Day. Please join us for this very special evening and visit our website for more details. Second Story Podcast is brought to you by Megan Steelstra, Shannon Sullivan, Miles Pulaski, Mikhail Fixel, Eric Engelson, and Nick Kawahara. I am Artistic Director Amanda Dalheimer. Serendipity is funded in part by the Gaylord and Dorothy Donnelly Foundation, the Illinois Arts Council Estate Agency, the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation, City Arts Grants, the Chicago Community Foundation, a part of the Chicago Community Trust, the Arts Work Fund, and listeners just like you. To find out more about Second Story, the performances, and our performers, or to make a donation, please visit us at secondstory.com.